This podcast is generously supported by Zondervan Bibles and the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible edited by D.A. Carson, featuring notes and articles that help you follow God's redemptive plan as it unfolds throughout Scripture. Find out more at NIVBiblicalTheologyStudyBible.com. Want to learn how to interpret and teach the entire Bible in a way that is Christ-centered and clear? Learn with us here on the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. Welcome to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast, where we want to have conversations about the scriptures in a way that is Christ-centered, but also clear for uh, the reader and the hearer, and uh, and think through ways we can apply that to our lives. We're continuing our conversation on the book of Daniel, and we're going to be looking at Daniel 8 uh, today. And so, Jeff, why don't you uh, kick us off? Um, we actually have lost Jason Redberg for the recording of chapters 8 through 12, but um, he won't be missed much at all, so we'll we'll kind of press on without him, <laughs> and uh, and uh, just just see what we can do with chapters eight through twelve, which is obviously much different. So yeah, Jeff, kick us off with chapter eight. It does kind of take a turn there. We can talk some about that textual issue summary for those that are kind of in their car, and then we'll talk about how it points to Christ and application you made for your people. Grant, well, we know why Jason chickened out of this <laughs> section, really, uh, but there we go. We're We've entered into the prophetic uh, part of Daniel. We did from chapter 7, and he's continuing. Uh, and Daniel has another vision in the year of Belshazzar. So we are not in any chronological order now in Daniel. Uh, but he sees this vision. And interesting, the, at the end of the vision, it's quite comforting to me because he says at the end of it, it was beyond his understanding, uh, which is comforting for me whenever we come to this. But what does he see in, in this vision? Well, quite simply, he sees a, a ram, uh, just to summarize, it is two horns charging with great success in all different directions. And then a goat comes from the west, and it is a single large horn, and it comes flying through the air, charges straight at him, hits him, smack him, smashes him, basically like one of your American footballers would do, and <laughs> knocks off the two horns. By the way, our rugby players do the same thing, but we do it without padding I mean, and protective gear. Tougher. But there you yeah. go. <laughs> uh, so the goats uh, rams over the ram, and and uh, then this goat we see a, a horn grow out of his head and splits into four horns, and within one of those four horns, another horn rises up and wreaks havoc and sets itself up against the Lord, and this takes place for uh, a period of time. So that's the vision that he sees, and then it looks like uh, Angel Gabriel uh, appears and gives a meaning to Daniel, who's in this deep sleep, and he basically tells him, first of all, the two-horned ram identifies clearly who the empire is. Uh, This is a mid-Persian empire uh, depicted in in the ram, and then the goat comes along and smashes it and that is representing the greek empire and then the uh the four kings come from that and then finally this little king a fierce king representing that other horn which brings devastation on god's holy people so that's a vision and really that's the interpretation and and you know and uh, maybe most commentators will say yeah this is a 
Greek Empire is the GOAT, and the first horn is probably Alexander the Great. And yet the focus isn't on that horn. The focus then comes on down onto this little horn who starts to wreak havoc on God's people. Uh, Alexander isn't a focus. He would be in all major history textbooks, but not here uh, because we've got a different focus. And so this little king, this little horn goes and attacks God's people, the beautiful land. We see that in verses 10 and 11. And one of the main things he does is to go and do away with all the sacrifices in the temple. Now, most people, I would say, recognize, the scholars recognize this guy, this horn to be Antiochus Epiphanes uh, IV. And we can read about him in the book of Maccabees. And some of you will have already heard about him. His famous reign began in 175 BC. And he had a horrific history in how he set about well, destroying the Jewish religion. And he did that by going in, ceasing all that was happening at the temple and the sacrifices and did terrible things, nothing like was seen before. Uh, and then what we read about, though, he's defeated in verse 25. And we know also the Maccabean freedom fighters destroyed Antiochus uh, around, I think it was around 165 uh, BC or somewhere around there. So that's sort of the the most of the vision and how it's generally interpreted, but uh, maybe some of you guys have other ideas. Yeah, John, thoughts on chapter eight, uh, textual issues, anything like that? No, I think, um, I think I agree with, with what's been said. I think it's just textually, it's easy to see Daniel eight's broken into actually two halves. So the vision is, is the first 14 verses and the interpretation is the second 14 verses. And I think it's it's pretty clear so that he he you know he names the the um, he names the the kingdoms because we we've had this in Daniel seven right that there's going to be these four kingdoms the first one is Babylon and then there's going to be three succeeding kingdoms and the and those two are are named uh, by name uh, right in this in this um, chapter so this helps us. This helps us understand that uh, again, as we talked about, the se- identifying the second kingdom. That um, there's debate sometimes. You know, I know that uh, Jeff had said there's debate about whether it, it, you separate the Medes and the Persians. Well, chapter eight puts them together, so that's uh, that makes it clear. So that gives us interpretation there. Um, and then you have uh, the next verse. The Greek Empire is named by name. Uh, and these things are happening. This vision is, is happening and being written down hundreds of years before uh, some of these things uh, become a reality. And so it's an amazing accuracy uh, of predicting what's going to happen in the future. And then, yeah, that the focus here. So and I know we'll get into some more uh, interpretation as we talk about the Christ centered aspect of it. But uh, we do know, I think it's it's pretty clear from the text that the little horn in chapter eight it, this is my interpretation. I'd love to hear Jeff. The little horn in chapter eight is different from the little horn in chapter seven because the little horn in chapter eight comes from the third empire, not the fourth empire. Uh, the fourth empire is not not uh, you know mentioned here in chapter eight, and so uh, so I think that means that Antiochus is the little horn here. So he he could be a type, and I think certainly he is he is used later in this period of time is used later. Uh, in Revelation as a type of the tribulation and type of the Antichrist. But but um, Antichrist is not specifically the referent here in chapter 8. It's Antiochus. Um, 
and then yeah, just um, historically, you know this this idea. So this idea of the seven years that that's going to be used in Revelation uh, comes about here because it, and it, it, history books will tell you that Antiochus's um, devastation of the beautiful land of the promised land went from about 171 BC to about 164 BC. So it was about seven years. Um, and so, yeah, so just, a, it's an amazing, amazingly accurate uh, depiction of what is going to happen in the future. Jeff, any, uh, yeah, anything's there to the, the little horn or other comments to what John said, and then tell us uh, how you made Christ connections out of Daniel eight. No, I, I agree with John. I, I think this is more specific here. The little horn here definitely refers to Antiochus. Uh, whereas, as he said in chapter 7, I saw that as more forward-looking to towards the, the final, uh, possibly, an Antichrist. But, yeah, so uh, it seems different than it might be different, but I, I think it, it, in some sense it has to be. And, and the way it all lines up, with history, it seems to make sense. So yeah, uh, I go with that and Christ's connections and for this passage, well, it is amazing how this is predicting future empires time after time. But I think what's interesting is that this is showing that there is a, a spiritual battle going on behind the scenes. So even though this thinking about this little horn is setting himself up and going against God, really, and God's people. Uh, even though he is not the final Antichrist, it's like 1 John 2, 19 talks about, as you've heard, Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. So I think Antiochus is certainly one of those many Antichrists that is set to destroy God's people in throughout history. And here's a very specific attack. And yet, because what does he do? He's really going against God's people because the focus here in the text is that he's going and attacking in the temple and getting rid of the sacrifices and, and mocking that. And I would say Satan is ultimately behind all of this. And yet what happens? Well, how do we get to Christ? Well, well, at the end of the vision part of verse 14, it talks about him being destroyed. Uh, or Well, first of all, it talks about, first of all, the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful place. So this is looking forward to the temple in one sense being restored, God dwelling with his people, the sacrifices completed, relationship restored. This is looking forward to that day. And I think ultimately there's one way you can tie it to Christ. Jesus is ultimately the true temple where all this is fulfilled in, where God dwells, where it's through Jesus, our sins are forgiven through his once and for all sacrifice. So Jesus is the ultimate temple who will bring the restoration and the restoring. So I think we could tie it to Christ through that, the temple link, but also verse 25, it, at the end of the explanation, again, it really says that uh, this prince, this, this horn shall be broken, but by no human hand. So even though we know in, in history Antiochus was defeated and by the Maccabean fighters, it says here's by no human hand. And again, I think if we go behind the scenes here, we realize just as Satan might be behind Antiochus, uh, so his defeat, ultimately, Christ is going to defeat Satan. Uh, and he does it 
because he is God himself. This is He defeats Satan not by any human hand. So as ultimately, Christ can be seen here, I think, is through the fulfillment of the temple imagery and also through ultimately defeating uh, this ruler, and he's being defeated by no human hand. John, anything to add there? Yeah, so I think I, I uh, took a similar approach, but I'll just say it kind of going big and then and then zeroing in. Obviously, as we as we link this with chapter seven, which has given us this this view of the future of history, you're gonna the Christ connection in, in terms of just the big thirty thousand foot is that these kingdoms will fall and, and Christ will establish God's kingdom on earth. Um, and so we see that in the the Maccabean revolt and the defeat of. Uh, Antiochus, that God's keeping that promise that these kingdoms will fall and that and that God's people will be vindicated and God will continue to establish his kingdom. You know, it is amazing the accuracy of how the, when when Alexander died and the kingdom was divided in four and, and those kinds of things are uh, interesting. And then Antiochus comes from that. And as, as Jeff said, he's a, he is a type of the Antichrist. And so you have the way I kind of uh, zeroed in on this is in him trying to completely eradicate Israel's faith, right? He's trying to eradicate their worship of God uh, by desecrating the temple, by sacrificing a pig in the Holy of Holies, by ceasing sacrifice and all of these different things that he's doing. He's trying to to, to desecrate and and destroy worship of the one true God. And so I, I just talked about how um, one of the ways that I that I come at this sometimes is, is uh, using movies as illustration to try to help my people understand what's going on. And so not that I'm like advocating for this movie or endorsing it, but I, I do think that Terminator, the Terminator movies like the original, I haven't seen like the newest ones, but the original is that there was this this evil, you know, like this evil empire that takes over the world. It's the machines. And then there's this Messiah figure, John Connor, who comes on the scene, defeats the evil system, defeats the machines and rescues humanity and, and establishes human dominion over the earth again. And so what, what do they do in order to attack him? They go back in time to when his mom is, uh, you know, his mom is vulnerable, try to kill her. Then when he's a, a, a boy, they try to go back then and, and kill him. And so I talk about how Revelation 12 gives us the similar, a similar image of what's happening in history, that the, the dragon, Satan, is raging against uh, this promise of the Messiah, the, the, the offspring of the woman. And so you have this image of the dragon ready to catch the baby when he's born and, and devour him, but he's, he's rescued and then caught up into heaven in Revelation 12. And so I, I kind of trace for my people, and I did in this sermon as well, all along the line, how you have these antichrist figures who are trying to wipe out the line of the Messiah. You have this, you have Pharaoh who's, who's throwing babies into the Nile River. You, you know, you've got, uh, Athaliah who's, who's trying to kill all the sons of David. Uh, and so I think you see that, that kind of thing happening here. Uh, this, this assault on the line of Messiah. You see it in, in Esther uh, play out with Haman trying to wipe out all of the Jews. Uh, you see it with Herod's, uh, then when Jesus comes on the scene, you see it with Herod trying to kill the babies. And then you see it with this alliance of Rome and the Sanhedrin who's, who's crucifying, uh, the Messiah, this, this, uh, Psalm 2, the rage of the nations against the Messiah, but God establishing him in Zion. And so I, that's kind of the, the, that kind of idea that Jeff gave of this spiritual conflict going on behind the scenes, this rage uh, behind the scenes of the offspring of the woman and, uh, the offspring of the serpent and how this ultimately plays out with, uh, Jesus getting the victory. And so that's, that's one of the ways that I, uh, zeroed in on Christ. And then, and then I did, I did also talk about, um, 
the um, the sanctuary idea that this this ultimately, and we're going to see here, and you know, when we get to chapter nine, that even though the people are in Daniel eight, even though the people are back in the land, uh, the promises have not been fulfilled because because they're back in the land, but they're still under foreign rule, and they're not. The kingdom of God has not been set up, and that's not going to happen. Uh, we're going to see until the crucifixion of Jesus, and uh, and and He's the one who is the true sanctuary. You, you, you tear this down, and I'll build it back up in three days. When He's raised from the dead, uh, and it's it's a it's a, a temple that's made of living stones. That it's Him and His His body, His people that are advancing. And so those those are uh, basically the ways in Daniel eight that I I pointed to Christ as the fulfillment of. Of this and how ultimately all these different antichrist figures that come on the stage of human history, they're going to be defeated by Christ. Now be a good time to hear from our sponsor. This podcast is generously supported by Zondervan Bibles and the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible edited by D.A. Carson. Biblical theology allows you to ponder the individual stories and themes of Scripture while observing how they all fit together in God's grand biblical narrative. That's why this unique study Bible features three articles in introducing biblical theology and 25 articles unpacking key themes of Scripture. The NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible contains detailed book introductions, 20,000 verse-by-verse study notes, 28 theologically rich articles by authors such as Tim Keller and Kevin DeYoung, hundreds of full-color photos, more than 90 maps, and over 60 charts. All of this allows readers to marvel at the big story while savoring each detail. With a focus on biblical theology and the overarching story of Scripture, the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible helps readers follow God's redemptive plan as it unfolds throughout the Scriptures. Find out more at NIVBiblicalTheologyStudyBible.com. Jeff, uh, how did you then make application? I mean, obviously, as we said, even joked about Jason dropping off for this one, not because of these, but it, it is uh, sometimes people read these texts and say, how does that apply to my life? How did you apply it to your people? I, I really would encourage people to preach these passages, even though there are difficulties, because uh, it can be a real comfort to the people, because even, I mean, in the first place, uh, how did I apply it? Well, we have to think about who were the first readers even of this or the first hearers of this message. And they would have been going through difficulties, whether it was whenever they, some had returned to the land or whether uh, just hearing this vision uh, from Daniel. But they would have then been taught and heard, you know, there's still going to be difficulties to come. Uh, there's going to be oppression from different rulers uh, and empires are going to come. And it's better to be prepared for difficulties and sufferings and to know that so that when it does come, you have a foundation, you're not taken by surprise. But also, why you know, I applied it as well, isn't it? Comforting to see how prophecies do come true. And that's why we shouldn't really ignore these passages because you'd be surprised how encouraging that is for maybe your church congregation who haven't looked at these passages and actually haven't understood them and then they see this they're going my this is this is history this is true so we can be comforted that prophecies come true and our folks need to hear this so preach it but also that there's a spiritual battle going on uh that has worked out in history there's stuff going on behind the scenes with rulers empires and it you know we're maybe and maybe in the western world are can be in danger of neglecting the spiritual battle going on behind the scenes unless we preach on Ephesians 6. You know, that's uh, only when it comes up, not if you address this last half of Daniel. Uh, But then it's also comforting because we see that God is in control 
despite what's happening in history. We don't we won't have all our questions answered now. What's going on in the world? Daniel didn't. Think about that at the end that he said, I have no understanding. I don't understand what's going, to, going on. I'm in, I'm in a little bit of tur- He didn't have all the questions answered, but we even can see there's real hope. God is actually behind all of history, and it's all pointing to Jesus. Uh, yes, Satan will buffet. Trials will come, as it says, but uh, we're secure. So, I mean, as a, I think I ended, I said rams will come and go, goats will come and go, but the lion who was slain, the lion of Judah, the lamb who was slain, he'll be worshipped forever. So this is a real comforting passage that people need to hear. Yeah, I think there's a lot actually of practical application in this passage that I wanted to bring out for my people. But I, I think along with what Jeff has said, I mean, this is this is a comfort to any to, to any believer going through trial, and certainly Christians who are going through persecution. I mean, this, this would be, and, and as Jeff said, look, we we have prophecy that tells us very similar things to this. We don't, like Daniel, we don't know the dates and we don't know the times any more than he did, but it came true. And so believers in North Korea who are facing execution, they, they know, listen, North Korea is going to come down at some point that that regime is going to fall and they're going to live forever <laughs> with Jesus reigning and ruling on a new, a new heaven, new earth. And so um, so that this is a is a massive comfort, I think, to us that our God holds the future in his hand and that we can trust the promises uh, and that they're going to work out. And that should bring comfort in, in trial. So one of the ways I set this up was kind of just kind of funny when I when we were kids. You know, there was a there was a movie a set of movies called Back to the Future, and Back to the Future Two was kind of a real popular because they they. So you didn't you didn't uh, you didn't recommend Terminator, but you do recommend that. Oh yeah, Back to the Future. Yeah, it'd be it, it's great because um, <laughs> it, it showed you a vision of uh, in the future, like 2015, I think it, was, it, it predicted 26 years into the future, and. Uh, you know, we just loved it because it was like there's hoverboards and there was, you know, there's all those rumors that were going around when we were kids that, you know, they, they do have hoverboards, but the parent safety board won't give them a, a permit. So they can't sell them. Dang it. That that darn parent safety board. And there's flying cars and auto laces. And we we're past the year that that movie was pointing to. And none of that's come true. And there are hoverboards and they're, they're, they're like, you know, they've got wheels on them and they go, they, they, you can't fly. And so we, so we understand that like most predictions of the future are wrong and any attempts to forecast the future, um, just, just go wrong. But there's a reason why we want to know that. There's a reason why, uh, because if we know what the future is, then we can be prepared for it, right? That's why Marty wants the gray sports almanac because he, you know, hey, if I know what the future is, then, then maybe I can be successful in the present, uh, because I know what the future is. But we, we as believers, we get to trust God's word concerning the future. We know what the future is. Uh, and so that helps us live in, the, it's not just, not just, Prophecy is not given for just speculation, cool speculation and, and charts and those kinds of things and say, oh, man, isn't this isn't this neat? You know, kind of like Nostradamus, I mean, he got all these th- things right. It's crazy. He predicted the, the Kennedy assassination or whatever, you know, whatever it is. No, it's he's giving this to his people for them to live a certain way in the present. Uh, and to, to, to endure persecution and to be faithful in persecution and those kinds of things. And so uh, that's that's a that's what it is for us. Um I think the other the other things that I kind of uh, put put forth in terms of application is, is was live by the word. The beast wants to throw down the word and keep them from living by it. Um, and the problem I, I said for our people is that, <laughs> the problem for us is that often we do this voluntarily. 
you know, we let our Bibles gather dust and we don't read them and we don't live by them. And, and Satan wants to minimize the word and he wants to introduce false teaching and he, he wants to deceive the Bible says even the elect. And so we need to live by the word. Another thing that, that I think this passage teaches us is that even as Americans or, or Westerners, if we're not facing outright persecution, like some in the Middle East and, and Asia, you know, it's more of a, a idea hostility kind of thing. But we need to be compassionate towards our brothers and sisters who suffer. I mean, in, in chapter 8, verse 27, it tells us that Daniel was overcome and lay sick in his bed for several days because he saw this future suffering of God's people. And so do we care about other Christians who are suffering, uh, even when it doesn't affect us? Do we care beyond ourselves and do we pray for them? Uh, and I, so I think that's helpful. And then I think just ca- kind of going about your daily work, right? That da- Then Daniel, he, he he's sick for some days. And then it says, I rose up and went about the king's business. And so uh, I think, that, you know, uh, get up, work, raise your family, provide for your family, uh, do the work that you need to do. And then the last application I gave uh, and this may have been a stretch, but I, I think it's interesting because Jeff pointed out this this happens during um, the reign of Belshazzar. OK, and so my my last application was to speak boldly, uh, to speak boldly to power, basically, is because I, I, I don't know this. May, again, this may be a stretch. And so I'm, I'm happy for any pushback. But is it possible that this vision of the future where he knows, listen, not only is Babylon going to fall, but Medo-Persia is going to fall and the Greek, does that enable him to speak boldly to Belshazzar, knowing what's going to happen in the future? Um, Ferguson, I think, puts this out. He, say, he says, in all likelihood, is it is the authoritative interpretation of this vision that helps explain the boldness of Daniel's words to Belshazzar on the last days of his reign. Uh, and so are do we have such a confidence in the future of God's plan that we're able to speak truth to power and we're able to call it out and we're to, to be a people of principle and not a people of uh, immediacy and convenience. Thank you for listening to the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or texts you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com and please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources.